Thank you for that wonderful praise. Uh, thank you for that choir. I, uh, let's be honest. It's usually the men that are weak links in a choir like this. But the men more than held their own, not just in one language, but English and Latin as well. That's an amazing uh, dedication to your practice and, as well as your craft. Thank you for blessing me and blessing us with music this morning. Uh, let me offer my thanks as well as greetings from Westminster Seminary, California. I've been in my office for all of 12 weeks or so. Uh, this just means that I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And it's an honor for me to be here sharing this time with you and thinking through how the Lord has blessed the church and blessed the institution and thinking through how perhaps we can walk together as well. I'm a big fan of Pastor Steve from way back when. He's a UCLA grad, so am I. And so that itself should connect us in many ways. But the, you know, the fact that he's teaching many of our younger pastors how to stay in one place for 24 years is a beautiful testimony of God's grace in his life and in the life of the church as well. That's very, very uncommon. So happy birthday, uh, Living Hope. May the Lord bless you for many decades more as he has done so in the past. May he do so in the future as well as he leads the church to be a beacon of light, uh, a church that exalts the name of Jesus Christ every single week and every single day. This morning, I have the privilege of opening up the word before you. I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Shall we turn to the Lord in prayer? Thank you, O Lord, for bringing your sons and daughters and many who desire to know you more into the very presence of your throne. We ask that, O Lord, you open our eyes so that we may behold you ourselves. Open our ears, O Lord, that we may hear your voice as you proclaim to us your word. Open our hearts that these things will not just become an intellectual exercise for us, Lord, but that you will truly send these truths into our hearts that we may apply these things to our lives as well. We thank you and pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our text this morning begins with these words when he says, What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? It could be a question that refers us back to the immediate context of the verses that you and I know so well in verses 28 through 31, 
where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, often called the golden chain. The following verse says, and those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is an incredible summary of what Paul has been teaching thus far. And perhaps he could be referring to these specific verses. But I think what Paul has in mind is something much more general. What what he has in mind is what he's been teaching from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Here at the heart of the letter is this question, how can a sinner like you and I be right with God? How can sinners like you and I find a gracious and merciful God were the questions that Paul was pursuing throughout these chapters. In chapters 1, 18 through 3, 20, he talked about the fact that sin is universal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us. You nor I can stand before God simply saying, we are sinless before God, this God who is perfect. All of us have sinned and fallen short. Chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 5, then provides a solution for us. If indeed the bad news is that all of us have sinned before the righteous and perfect God, how can we save ourselves? How can we be right with God? The only solution that we can turn to is not within ourselves, but must come from outside of ourselves. And the solution comes in the form of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, whose shed blood upon the cross then becomes not only our forgiveness of sins, he clothes us with his righteousness so that we may stand before God right. We may stand before God justified before his sight. But it's not just that our position before God has changed as a result of Jesus Christ our Lord, but that the Lord through his spirit continues to change us, change us daily in such a way that you and I, by faith, become more and more like our Father in heaven. Thus, Romans chapter 5, 6 verse 1, all the way to where we just read chapter 8 verse 30, we are told that the spirit is working within you and I. For those of us who call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and he's making us more like him because we are his sons and daughters. This is what Paul has been talking about. And for him, it's not enough that he teaches theology to us. This must be applied, and Paul, as a preacher, turns his attention to how these things should be applied. You and I ought not to be surprised that the reformers 500 years ago considered the book of Romans the central text upon which their teachings were found. This is why Martin Luther, whose name is most closely associated with the Reformation and the Protestant movement, talks about the Romans this way when he says, Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. He further states, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So this morning, we want to occupy ourselves with the book of Romans, in particular, how Paul applies the teaching of Romans to us by beginning with this question, what then? 
shall we say in response to these things? Paul is asking his readers and listeners to react to what he has said. He is not satisfied in having expounded the greatest knowledge of theology, but as a pastor and preacher, he wants his readers and hearers to understand what he means for them. And he does this in four successive questions. These are unanswerable questions, not because there are no answers, but the answers are so obvious that you and I can answer without actually somebody telling them. And the first question begins this way in verse 31 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Paul had said, who can be against us simply, numerous answers might be given. One only needs to look at verse 35 to list out a catalog of hardships that you and I daily face. Things such as tribulation, Distress, persecution, perhaps famine, nakedness, danger, or even sword. The essence of this question, however, is in the if clause that precedes it. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that God is indeed for us. More accurately, this clause can be rendered, since God is for us, who can be against us? Since God is for us, Who can be against us? And you know who God is, don't you? It's the same God that Paul recognizes as Isaiah proclaims. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heavens and the earth, we're told. This God is for us. This is his promise to his people. It's a commitment from this promise-keeping God. His promise is that he was and is, and will be there with us and for us. After all, he's not only our God, but as the previous paragraph in chapter 8 tells us, he is our Father in heaven. You and I, as his sons and daughters, can rest in his care, because since he is for us, no one and nothing can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He is indeed our protector a sufficient protector for us. But that's where he begins. That's the first question. And the second question turns to us in verse 32 when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, Paul didn't ask the simple question, will God not graciously give us all things? We could say that there are many things that he hasn't given to us, or to me for that matter. We've grown up listing out our Christmas present list, and perhaps there are many that you still yearn after that you haven't received from the Lord. There are many things that you and I can talk about that the Lord seemingly did not provide for us. At best, this is an equivocal question. But that's not the question he asked. Notice what Paul does in his argument he first points out the costliness of the redemption and salvation that you and I have. He begins by saying, he who did not spare his own son. Romans 3, a few chapters ago, remind us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, made right freely by his grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, he said. His point is simply this. In saving us, our Father in heaven, God, went to the limit. What more could he have done for us? You and I cannot know the pain felt by the Father and Jesus upon that cross at Calvary. Yet we can say this. If the measure of love is what it gives, then there never was such a love as God showed us sinners at Calvary, and there never will be. The first part of this argument and verse makes the question possible. Arguing from greater to the lesser, Paul argues that all things will be given. Having given up his son, the most precious thing one can possibly imagine, everything else pales in comparison in spite of our protests. That for our salvation, he who began a good work in us will bring us home one day. And until the day we see him face to face, as that great hymn says, without a veil that covers our Lord's face, that day will surely come. And until that day, all that we need, all that we required, the Lord who has given up his son will provide for us. Pastor Steve mentioned that Sharon, my wife, and I have two kids. They're 12 and 10, and their names are Anna and Simeon, both taken from Luke 2, where we hope that uh, one day they too, like Anna and Simeon there, who recognize baby Jesus, even if no one else recognized the Savior upon the earth, that our children too will become witnesses of Jesus Christ. At least that's our prayerful hope. Well, Sharon and I, with our limitations, try our best to raise our kids well, with many mistakes, I'm sure. We house them daily without ever charging them. Uh, It's amazing how costly that is when you stay in a hotel, but yet we've never charged them once, (laughs) never even broached that subject. Um, They get three squares a day. I mean, sometimes they miss a meal here and there, but overall, they get three meals a day, yet... We've never charged them. They get three meals without any any complaints from us, and we try to give them the best food we possibly can. We're like Uber service to them. Um, (laughs) We drive them everywhere. Their schedules are sometimes more busy than ours, and we take them everywhere we can, and we've never charged them. They don't even have credit cards, and they don't have to because we don't charge them. Oftentimes, they come home and they tell us their friends have something and they want something. And as parents, we can't always give them what they want. We often don't have enough money. But more than not, we also don't want them to get everything they ask for every time they ask for them. But yet, we remember those things. It hits us right here that we're not giving them all that they want. And we wait until their Christmas or their birthdays to provide these gifts that they so wanted so they can play for two days and destroy them afterwards. But the point is, we give them these gifts anyways because we, we love them. And we've never actually charged for them. When, when we've done this, you would think that their words are always gratefulness. Thank you, Mom and Dad. You're the best parents ever. It's unbelievable how generous you are, mom and dad. You've never charged us, yet you've given us everything we needed and required. Said no children ever. 
The thing that you have to realize is that oftentimes the way we act toward our parents and perhaps the way our children act toward us is the very way we act toward our Father in heaven. That's the point that Paul wants to make to us. He who did not spare his own son, why will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Here, the simple point is this, that our God who has provided, he will continue to provide. He will bring you home. And until you see him face to face, nothing that you require, nothing that you need will be spared. His desire is to bring you home. This is the second point Paul wants to make, that our Lord is our provider. But there's a third question, isn't there? The third question simply goes this way in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Now, Paul does not for a moment deny that Christians fail and fall, sometimes in very serious ways. In fact, the second half of Romans chapter 7 reminds us of our condition, and perhaps it's just me, but I, I echo the sentiment of Paul when he says, for I do not do the good that I want, verse 19 of chapter 7 says, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, he says. What I do not want to do, I keep on doing, What I want to do, I do not keep on doing, he admits. He also does not deny that there are many who does and will accuse us. We can name many things that perhaps come as our accusers. Our conscience accuses us. The devil never ceases. In fact, the word diablos, which is the original behind the word the devil itself, means a slanderer. He slanders against us. In addition, we doubtless have many human enemies who delight to point an accuser finger at us at times. But Paul denies, Paul denies emphatically that any lapses now can endanger our justified status. None of their allegations can be sustained. And the reason is very simple. He sees the overall salvation as this courtroom drama. And in this courtroom drama, nobody is in a position to get God's final verdict in Christ Jesus, his son, to be reviewed or overturned. He is indeed the supreme court of the final decision-making when it comes to your destiny and my destiny. One of the central issues of the Reformation was the recovery of the doctrine of salvation, in particular, a doctrine called justification by Faith alone. This is why you often hear many times people declaring faith alone, faith alone. The point is simply this, and Protestantism simply means that we are protesting against the teaching that says that our salvation and our eternal destiny is dependent on the self, that our status before God is not determined by how good you are because your goodness changes every single day. It's not determined by how you are loving toward God because every single day your emotions of love changes. 
It's not about us doing things on our behalf so that we can gain right footing before the sight of God. But Romans 5 declares to us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not clamoring after God, not turning away from our sins, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the essence of sola fide or faith alone. That ultimately at the end, we do not have peace with God because of ourselves, for we bring nothing in our hands before the throne of God, but that our confidence, our hope, and our peace, and our eternal destiny rests upon the able shoulders of our, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why Martin Luther, as he talks about his standing before God, talked about his fear that he did everything he can, whether it be selling indulgences or receiving them, or whether he was walking through on steps on his knees, whether it be days spent in ascetic dedication before God. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But it's not about what he did. The essence of the beginnings of the Reformation in 1517, October 31st, It stands upon the doctrine that we do not save ourselves, but that all we do is we lean upon God's grace, holding on to his promises by faith alone, not anything else. And thus begins this movement, a protest against the medieval church. And as Luther says, the passage of Paul, where we are told that the righteousness is gained by faith, became to me a gateway into heaven. It's where his rest began. Here, we're told our Lord is the one who justifies. And this verdict that has been delivered in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, cannot change, cannot be overturned by anyone or any circumstance. You who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord, you are in his hands and he will not let you go. Not only does he provide, not only does he become the one who stands on our behalf as our protector, he's the very one who provides our salvation, and no one, no one, and nothing, no circumstance can change our status before him. Which leads us to the final question. Question number four found in verse 35 is this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oftentimes, human love clouds the way we view God's love because the way we love one another, even on our best day, our love for one another is conditional. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. It changes constantly in terms of the affection we have for one another. And it's completely, completely self-seeking. Even the best of us have our personal intention as well as goals in mind. But scripture is very clear. God's love for us is unconditional. It's sacrificial and it's unchanging. This is important to us because he as our preserver does not change his affection toward us. This is an important point for Paul because Paul was a realist. 
He was a realist who assumed that pain and suffering mark our lives on this side of glory. Don't let anyone make you believe that being a Christian who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord, that means somehow that wealth is right behind us or health is what follows us. Here, Paul is a realist about living on this side of glory before we see God face to face. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 18, he begins by saying, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he says, sufferings of this present time, on this side of glory, what Paul refers to as this present time, all of creation, you and I included, are marked by suffering, futility, Bondage, all results of sin. The creation itself eagerly longs for freedom and the restoration of God. We see the headlines all over. The headlines of more than uh, 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 many, many who have died and many more who are still recovering in Las Vegas. Or for that matter, season not yet having completely ended, devastations of hurricanes on the southeast side of our country. Or for that matter, even closer to us. Even with our family last Saturday hearing for the first time that one of our dear friends has cancer, that seems to be something that's invading his body in such a way, recovery seems very difficult hope for us. These are realities that you and I face every single day where suffering is all around us, whether from weak and weakening bodies, broken relationships and families, constant natural disasters, struggles through daily uncertainties. We daily realize that this world is not our home, and this is not the way it's supposed to be. For we live in weakness, as Paul says, in place of order, we have disorder and rebellion. In place of peace, we have discord and brokenness. In place of health, we experience pain and illness. In place of life, we daily experience death. But see, this is the important question for Paul. Can these sufferings and weaknesses of life separate us from Christ Jesus and his love? And his emphatic answer to us is no. Paul dares to argue that not only will we overcome them, but that we will triumph over these things in Christ. We are more than conquerors, he says. But here's the catch. This is not our own doing, verse 37 teaches us, but through him who loved us, he says. He is indeed our preserver. The climactic thought to which Paul rises in his fourth question is, no separation from Christ's love can ever befall us. In case we are faltering, in case we might think of something, he goes on to say this in verse 38. For I am sure, I am convinced, he said, not maybe, not perhaps, not if we really try, but he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth. And this is where a clever person might point out, Paul, you forgot to say something. So he actually has a bucket category. And the bucket category is simply this, nor anything else in all creation, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul is reminding us that God preserves us. He's our keeper, and he is ultimately our end. He's convinced that nothing, literally nothing, can overcome the love of Christ. He mentions every possibility, but you and I, standing on the promises of God through the Apostle Paul, we rejoice and are grateful for in remembering that nothing can separate us, his sons and daughters, from the love of Christ. Dear friends at Living Hope, my guess is that for those of you who have called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is your witness and your testimony. For those who have been long members here for 24 years, when God's faithfulness shines more than anything else, this is the witness and testimony you offer up this morning. For those of us who celebrate the Reformation, it's 500th year, more than individuals. It's about God, the main character at work among us, for he remains daily faithful to us. In order to summarize this, many of our fathers in faith, many of our mothers in faith, codify these teachings in what we call confessions and catechisms. These are merely meant to write down what we believe so that you and I can share the belief together, even generations after. And one of the catechism they wrote was the Heidelberg Catechism, written during the 1560s. And the first question and answer goes this way. The question and answer is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the answer written five centuries ago, meant for us to hear and see that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, and in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless the church. May the Lord bless the leadership of living hope that knowing that we belong to him by his Holy Spirit not only assure us of our life to come and the present life and the Lord's promise of preservation, but that it will challenge us, grant to us confidence that the Holy Spirit will make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. May the Lord bless you this week and the weeks and years to come, not only as single individual believers, but as a collective body, a family of Christ here at Living Home, that you may be faithful in your proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ, whose name alone deserves exaltation and praise. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.